Well, good evening, everybody um, here in Australia, and good morning if you're in the United States. Um, my name's Simon Jackman. I'm Professor of Political Science and the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Center here at the University of Sydney. And as is customary with all our events here at the University of Sydney, I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which the University of Sydney stands, the Gadigal people, part of the Aura Nation. And I pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging. Tonight is a, a very special event for us. Over 760 people have registered for this event with Ambassador John Bolton, former National Security Advisor uh, to President Donald Trump and uh, uh, a member of the foreign policy establish establishment, if you will, serving um, administrations in Washington going back decades, literally one of the great fixtures, if you will, of, uh, on the conservative side of American politics when it comes to, to come to foreign policy. Um, of course, Ambassador Bolton recently published um, this memoir of his time in the Trump administration, The Room Where It Happened, um, um, and uh, uh, doffing of the cap there to, to Hamilton there. Um, but um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's been a book that's been out now for a couple of months, and of course, Ambassador Bolton doing uh, a, a tremendous amount of media around the world to back it in, in which, you know, among other things, he revealed um, to Stephen Colbert, of all people, that he began his life in politics, handing out leaflets uh, for Barry Goldwater and uh, his first taste of life uh, in the White House complex was interning uh, for Spur Agnew uh, back in the back in the uh, the Nixon administration, and and but obviously uh, as an adult, uh, um, I'm serving in um, administrations from Ronald Reagan on all the way through. Um, most recently, of course, uh, the Trump administration, where he left uh, government service almost coming up on on, on 12 months ago now. Um, tonight. Is, is just such a remarkable opportunity. And I'm going to endeavor uh, to bring uh, uh, some of our friends on the call. Uh, we're partnering tonight with our, with our great friends and colleagues out at the Perth US Asia Center. Gordon Flake, the CEO of the Perth US Asia Center will be joining me a little bit later um, in, in this call. Um, but, but first of all, and we're just gonna dive straight in with Q&A so we can get to as many questions as possible. But I just want to say hello and welcome to Ambassador Bolton from Washington in his office there. Well, thanks very much for having me. Glad to do this, even if virtually. Yeah, and we were just saying before we came on, it's um, uh, turning um, adversity into opportunity here and, and talking to uh, 700 people largely based uh, in Australia here without having to do the 15 hour or the 18 hour flight or whatever it is from, from the East Coast of the US. Um, instead, it's a very early start for the ambassador and his staff this morning. So we thank you in advance uh, for that. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, um, I might just dive straight in uh, with a fairly high level question. And that is, look, one of the signature accomplishments of the Trump administration in our view here at the US uh, Study Center is a cementing if you will, of a strategic mindset in Washington and, and finding voice in the national security statement and the, um, that, that was, you know, came out with great dispatch, but great force, sort of announcing a, a very different attitude, if you will, a different mindset in forming American foreign policy that we're now in officially, as it were, an era of great power rivalry um, and, and putting China and Russia firmly in the crosshairs of, of, of what America's strategic challenges are in, in the near term in particular. Um, then that with some criticism from, from different parts of the world where, you know, it, it was criticized as America's got a, an attitude about China. It's yet to have really a strategy. Um, now, I'm wondering how you'd react to that, um, that characterization I offered, and also the criticism from third parties of, of, the, of, of where things stand with America's strategic mindset at the moment. Is this more than a mindset? Is it starting to operationalize itself yet in, in concrete strategy? Because that too is a question many of us have here. What is the strategic end state that the United States in particular envisages uh, for the Indo-Pacific? Well, again, thanks very much for having me. And I think, I think this really is the question that, that I expected would dominate a conversation with, with folks <laughs> in Australia for understandable reasons. And I think it is a fair criticism that as of the moment, 
there is no widely agreed comprehensive U.S. strategy with respect to China. And I think there are a number of reasons for that, uh, in, in, uh, many of them related to the fact that we are only uh, day by day becoming increasingly aware of some of the things China has been doing. Uh, that turn out to be much more threatening, much more dangerous than we had expected. And I, I lay out in the book, um, not at the length I would have, uh, the, the book's 500 pages long. If Simon and Schuster had given me another 500 pages, I would have been much happier. But, you know, you can only say so much. But I do think, uh, broadly speaking, uh, over the past three or four decades, American policy and much of the policy of, of the West as a whole uh, with respect to China has been based on two foundational premises. One is that as uh, China abandoned orthodox Marxist principles and opened up to market economics, the expectation was the wealth of the country would grow substantially, which, which indeed it did, although probably less than what China claims it is in its statistics. And the consequence of this increase in wealth was supposed to produce uh, two uh, realities that on, on which American policy was based. Reality number one was the uh, growing economic strength of China would make it uh, into a more customary international player. And uh, you can find this uh, premise in the argument that China is engaged in a peaceful rise and it will be a responsible stakeholder in international affairs. Uh, I think we can see with the benefit of hindsight, and as I say, we're realizing increasingly uh, that, that China has uh, not conformed to the international norms, I'll call it, of the OECD countries. Uh, in the WTO, it's pursued a mercantilist economic policy and what's supposed to be a free trade organization and doing very well at it from their point of view. They have stolen intellectual property at a phenomenal rate uh, from the US, uh, the EU, Japan, Australia, uh, almost any country that produces intellectual property, they've stolen it. They've engaged in forced technology transfers. They've discriminated against foreign investors and businesses, uh, all of which has done an enormous amount to, to increase China's economic uh, well-being. Uh, because uh, when you can steal intellectual property and you don't have to pay to develop it, uh, you're obviously in a much better situation. China has not played by uh, market-oriented rules in terms of its support for Chinese businesses functioning uh, internationally. The Belt and Road Initiative has been a fantastic success for China in undermining governments in third world countries, getting them in what we call the debt trap, uh, which it's very hard to get out of. Uh, and in fact, many Chinese companies, and I would put air quotes around that, are arms of the Chinese state, Huawei being the best example. It's not a telecommunications company. It's part of China's intelligence services. And that's what the fight over uh, fifth generation telecommunications globally is now all about. This was a case, I have to say, where Australia and New Zealand saw the Huawei threat more clearly before the United States did. Uh, and now you see the US catching up, bringing Britain along, Canada, uh, and so on, and, and hopefully Europe and others. Uh, so the, the point is the whole idea of a responsible uh, a stakeholder and a peaceful rise has turned out not to be the case. What China is doing in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, the exact opposite of a peaceful rise. And I could go into great length about the militarization of Chinese policy. I'm sure many of the people uh, listening are very, very familiar with it. The second premise uh, that flows from China's increased uh, economic capacity is it will become more democratic. And I well remember in the late 80s, early 90s, people saying, well, there was a Democrat ele election for village leader out in some village nobody had ever heard of in some remote province in China. And there was another one a thousand miles away and it's gonna grow and there are gonna be more and more village elections. And then we'll have provincial elections and they'll be democratic. And then we'll have national elections and they'll be democratic too. Instead, in uh, uh, Xi Jinping, we have the most authoritarian Chinese leader since Mao Zedong and there's no prospect, no evidence whatever that democracy is going anywhere uh, except down. Uh, ask the people of uh, Hong Kong if you want news of the latest. Ask the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. Uh, this, this is a more and more authoritarian society. Uh, it believes in what they call civil military fusion, which is a chilling phrase if you think about it. And maybe even more chilling is the phrase social metrics by which they judge their citizens. 
they rate them, they measure them, and they judge them. That, that's, that's not my cup of tea. So, so when, when you see these two foundational premises of policy collapsing, uh, obviously you need, you need something else, and we are now in the process of developing that. I, I do think there is a fundamental attitudinal shift in the United States uh, underway uh, about China. Uh, induced in the past six, seven months by the COVID-19 pandemic, as I think people began to understand how in the early days, China lied about the disease, covered up information, engaged in a systematic disinformation campaign uh, worldwide. Uh, th this, this is something that uh, we, we won't know exactly how profound the impact it is, but just as one analogy, possibly, public opinion polls in the United States after the Tiananmen Square uh, suppre suppression of 1989 showed an immediate downward tick in favorability ratings with China, especially among younger people. That has never changed as time has gone on. That cadre of young people who witnessed Tiananmen Square in the U.S. has, has had a negative view of China for a long time. I think we're going to see the same thing. So uh, in predicting what will happen, whether it's a Republican administration or a Democratic administration, I think this is ongoing and, and will obviously continue to have an effect at the strategic level, too. Yeah, um, I, I'm wondering, though, I mean, most of your answer there, uh, with respect, <laughs> was describing the issue. I think, is there, what does a free and open Pacific, for instance, or the rules base, and what, what are the particulars that accompany either, either fork in the road that we may be coming up on with the election, um, I, I agree. I think it would be our assessment. I, I suspect it's yours too, that across both sides of politics in the United States, that realization about China is widely shared. But what other pathways to that finding a firmer foothold in on the ground policy, perhaps under either a second Trump administration or, or a Biden administration? Well, I, 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 think, uh, I think that's what the debate is about. I, I don't think it's certain wh which way we will go. And uh, I could describe the Trump approach, but, but, to, but to take the larger question, because this is going to be with us for the rest of the century, mm -hmm. uh, those who share what I'll call the Henry Kissinger, Bob Zellick view of China have not given up. Uh, if, if you're a major uh, Wall Street uh, financial services firm that's done a lot in China. You've made a lot of money there. You're, you're not about to uh, to renounce the uh, investment uh, plan that you've been pursuing for a long time. So, so the debate is changing, but it's but it's hardly won. I think there are a number of things that the United States has to do. Some of which Trump has done. Uh, others others remain uncertain. I think China has to be held to account rigorously on trade rules. I think what they've done in the WTO is absolutely unacceptable. Uh, and I don't think the United States or anybody else has to sit back and take it. I, I don't think we've done nearly enough. Uh, one proposal I made uh, while I was in the White House that actually Trump said he liked, but nobody's done very much with because it's pretty uh, wide sweeping, would be to have a simple rule with respect to imports from China. There will be no imports from China that rest in whole or in part on stolen American intellectual property. I mean, that would be, that's the kind of, uh, of uh, strike I think you need to get their attention. I think there's much more that needs to be done in terms of building a, uh, a coalition, if you will, uh, in the uh, Indo-Pacific region. I think the Japanese, the uh, Indians, certainly Australia, there are other players as well, uh, are much more attuned to the need for this kind of cooperation than the U.S. is yet, although I think the U.S. is moving in this direction. And I think the nature of the Chinese military threat needs to be, uh, needs to be understood much more than it has in the United States. And I think it's going to continue to put upward pressure. It should put upward pressure on the U.S. military budget. Uh, but China's military advances cover a wide spectrum. It's not just building naval and air bases in the South China Sea. It's one of the most extensive and advanced cyber warfare programs uh, on the planet. It's uh, a reach into space. It's building a blue water Navy for the first time in 500 years. It's upgrading their nuclear and ballistic missile capabilities, developing uh, area denial and anti-access weapons uh, systems to push the U.S. and allied navies back from the Chinese coast, implicitly threatening uh, Taiwan and, and, uh, and other strategic 
uh, areas. It, it's it's a very very uh, disturbing, and obviously this military buildup has economic possibilities if China succeeds in making the South China Sea a Chinese lake rather than international waters. Uh, the oil supplies from the Middle East to Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan are very much in jeopardy. So there's a, there's a, a, a whole range of things that the U.S. needs to do, and we are playing catch up. We're playing a come back to Huawei as an example. Look how far into fifth generation we got before we realized what the Huawei threat was, and that's only emblematic of of the need for a lot of catch up to be played. So I think the debate is wide open on. Uh, uh, on the strategy, and and I think uh, uh, although we're not where we ought to be in the United States, we're also way ahead of players in places like Europe. I think in Asia Pacific, more thinking has been done on the subject. But but look, it took over a year, just as an example, to get the United Kingdom to agree they were going to cut Huawei out of fifth generation. It was hard with a conservative government, no less, right. recently than Boris Johnson. And progress is slower on continental Europe, so so that just that's that's another metric of the distance that we have to go. Yeah. Okay. Um, I might um, hand over at this point to Gordon Flake uh, in Perth. Gordon. Indeed, Ambassador Bolton. Bolton, uh, my greetings from the west coast of Australia, what we like to refer to as Australia's Indian Ocean capital. Uh, and you can rest assured that, in addition to the interest that's in Sydney and Canberra on the east coast, there. There's a, a very large community here on the West Coast deeply interested in your book and your views, and that extends into the region. Uh, we have with us on the, on the call today viewers from some 26 different countries, a large portion of them in the Indo-Pacific who are interested in your views. Now, if I might kind of kick off with a, a little bit of a political question, uh, I'm sure that in your decades in Washington, D.C., you encountered many flakes, but only a few of them have actually had the name flake. Um, like you, and I know your, your, your uh, affiliation with the Goldwater Institute, uh, former U.S. Republican center, Senator from Arizona, Jeff Flake, who formerly ran the Goldwater Institute, um, like you, made a decision early on, an announcement early on, that he wouldn't be supporting President Trump for re-election. But just this past week, Senator Flake came out and said that on the core issues of American democracy, he found Joe Biden to be more conservative than President Trump. Uh, given all the things that you outlined in your book and the comments that you've made since then, what's keeping you from taking that next step? Well, I don't, I don't agree that Joe Biden is, uh, is, is, more con is conservative enough, let's put it this way. Look, in, in analyzing Donald Trump, and, and I think I lay this out in, in great detail in the, in the book, he doesn't have a philosophy. I mean, let, let's not kid ourselves. Philosophy, grand strategy, policy are just things that Trump doesn't do. Um, he, he doesn't, pe people say, well, that's not possible. What do you mean he doesn't think about policy? And I'm telling you, if, if you believe policy is a progression from A to B to C to achieve an objective, he doesn't do that. He may be a great real estate developer. He may know how to do buildings. And he is uh, first among equals. Uh, in the task of getting himself elected and reelected, which people should take due note of. But to the extent that would involve policy thinking, he doesn't do it. Uh, that's part of the problem, and it's part of my problem, uh, one of many with a potential Trump second term, because I think people may be sorely disappointed uh, in the direction he takes in a second term when he doesn't have the political constraint of re-election facing him. I think a lot of things that he's done could be reversed on a dime. M many of the steps he's taken, for example, with respect to China could go right out the window uh, if he's re-elected to, pr to pursue a, uh, a Chinese trade deal. So from my perspective, there's, it's, this is not a question of judging the relative conservatism of the two candidates. Trump doesn't have a philosophy. Joe Biden's administration, if he prevails, will be much like Barack Obama's at best. Uh, so faced with this unacceptable choice of not having a conservative Republican running in November, I'm not going to vote for either one of them. I'm going to write in somebody else's name. I'm not going to be happy on election day or the day after or for the next four years. Uh, so what I'm, what I'm focused on is keeping a Republican majority in the Senate, which is no small task to be a check against either a Trump reelection or a Biden victory. Oh, thank you. Um, as we discussed before the, the, the call formally started, 
During the 25 years I spent in Washington, D.C. at the Atlantic Council, at the Korea Economic Institute, the Mansfield Foundation, and the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, I spent a lot of time focusing on, on North Korea. And your views are pretty widely known, regardless of the issue, but they're particularly well known on, on North Korea. So I have to confess that in, in June of 2018, when there was a summit meeting between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, there was a, probably a little bit of inappropriate amusement in my part watching you, of all people, John Bolton, shake hands with Kim Jong-un. Uh, I then read your book and, and focused very particularly on that chapter where you described in great detail the Singapore summit. And I have to confess, uh, your book gained great credibility with me because you detailed uh, incredibly uh, minutely your discomfort with every step of that process. Uh, now, the thing I want to ask you about today is, is a wonderful quote that you had uh, in that chapter where you said, don't just do something, sit there. Um, and I wonder if you might take that quote, which I thought was fantastic, and put it in the context of the current problems we face with North Korea. Because the reality is, after the last three years, we have indeed done something, right? There has been a presidential summit in Singapore, subsequent meetings on Hanoi and on the DMZ. So we're a long ways away from where we were, where we had an international coalition supporting pressure on North Korea. So the question I would ask with you, having done something, are we, are we better off today in dealing with North Korea? Are we in a worse position? Where do we stand? Well, I think we're worse off because if for no other reason, uh, three and a half, almost four years of Trump uh, has given Kim Jong-un the potential to continue to work on his nuclear and ballistic missile programs. Trump always uh, uh, touts the fact there haven't been nuclear tests recently or ballistic missile, uh, long-range ballistic missile tests. Well, one reason you don't test is you've already perfected what you need to do and you're in production rather than testing. Uh, and in fact, testing has gone on of shorter range missiles, which, which can be used, uh, what you learn there in, in developing longer range missiles. So for three and a half years, North Korea has continued largely out of sight to, to work on its program. Uh, and since time always benefits the proliferator in a, in a weapons of mass destruction proliferation scenario, they have moved ahead. Now, the country remains desperately poor. It's a 25 million person prison camp. Uh, we, we have not done anything to change any of that. Uh, and the three meetings between Trump and Kim Jong-un, I think, have helped uh, legitimize uh, the North Korean regime in ways that uh, nobody, nobody ever would have imagined we would have done. Trump, Trump simply does not accept the argument that when the president of the United States uh, meets a dictator from North Korea, the dictator from North Korea grows and the U.S. president shrinks a little bit. We got nothing from those meetings. Kim Jong-un got a lot. And I think the prospect that there was a deal in sight uh, did weaken enforcement of the sanctions. Now, we don't know the situation inside North Korea today. We don't know how much the pandemic may have affected it. Uh, and, uh, but we do know that, uh, that the idea of reunification between North and South Korea is farther away than it was before, and that the sunshine policy in South Korea has once again uh, proven inadequate to the task. Now, what will happen? Look, North Korea is one of the subjects, I think, of a potential October surprise. For those of your listeners who don't know this American phrase, it's what a candidate does in the month before the election when they're behind and desperate for something to turn things around. I wouldn't discount the possibility of a fourth Kim-Trump meeting. I think it's unlikely, but that's the nature of an October surprise. And it's also the nature of the second Trump term, that all of the things that he said in the last six or eight months in order to get reelected go out the door once he is reelected. He's a truly free man at that point, so, something that frightens me. Look, I know that Simon has got a long list of questions that were submitted beforehand that are coming in live, as well as a couple of people who want to ask live questions. But let me squeak in one final question. One of the things that really comes out to me in reading your book, uh, and again, was, was well known in your reputation in the years that I was in Washington, DC, is your mastery, not just of policy, but of political process. Um, and one of the challenges it seems to me that the Trump administration faced from the very beginning was that I would argue probably the overwhelming majority of the Republican foreign policy establishment back in 2016 signed never Trump letters. Just last week, another 70 senior Republican foreign policy officials 
have you know basically signed a letter warning against a Trump re-election and endorsing Joe Biden. Given the paucity of, of manpower, you know, looking at a, a potential Trump re-election, what implications does that have for the ability of a, a second-term Trump administration to actually carry out its policies uh, in the world more more broadly? Well, you know, the elements of the U.S. government continue to putter along, even, even when they don't have clear direction from, from the White House. So it's not like nothing is happening. But under Trump, structure, process, personnel uh, really don't mean very much. Uh, look, I, I, I thought that uh, when, when, I, when I joined the White House, I, I had heard from people who say Trump doesn't care about policy. And I thought, well, that's, that's completely impossible. Of course, of course he cares about policy. And he does when it affects his political fortunes. But I also thought, well, that'll mean that we can continue policy and uh, he just really won't pay that much attention to it. And that didn't turn out to be true either. But I don't, I don't think uh, the, the, the personnel involved really make that much difference because Trump gathers so much of the decision-making uh, into himself. He cares so little about facts and information, implications, consequences, cause and effect. He decides on the basis of his gut. Uh, it did well for him in his real estate career, and he thinks it's going to do well for him in the presidency. So there will always be people standing around ready to carry out orders, uh, but, but it, it, uh, I, I don't think that'll make that much difference, would be my guess. Thank you. Simon, you've got a, a, a difficult task in, in, in kind of prioritizing the long list of questions that you've got live, and otherwise I'll turn it back over to you. An embarrassment of riches. Thank you, Gordon. Uh, and, and first cab off the rank, so to speak, um, is, is a member of uh, Gordon's board, um, former Minister for Defence and uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs for Australia in, in uh, Labor governments here in Australia, uh, the Honourable Stephen Smith joining us from Perth. Uh, are we ready to bring Stephen? There he, there he is. Good evening, Stephen. Hi, Simon. Uh, thanks very much. And to you and to Gordon, well done for for getting uh, the ambassador's presentation and question and answer session. Ambassador, thank you very much. Um, I just want to focus on one of the aspects of your book, which is essentially uh, President Trump's potentially capricious treatment of allies. Australia has been very well served by its alliance relationship with the United States since the end of World War II. And one of the features of our relationship with the US has been that the alliance, whether it's a Republican or Democrat administration in the States and Labor or Liberal in uh, Australia, the, the mechanics of the alliance just continue to roll on in our national interest. And I think of the allies who've had difficulty uh, with President Trump during his first term, Australia's potentially, I think, managed better than most. Uh, better, I think, say, than Korea and Japan. If, and you spoke about the demise of the responsible stakeholder thesis and countries from 2013, 2014 on starting to hedge against China and now uh, openly sceptical about China's intentions. But if, if you turn that to uh, the quaint phrase that we use here about US policy uncertainty, which is essentially Trump's capacity to be capricious for allies, not knowing what is true or real, if any intentions are in terms of the Indo-Pacific and the region, if you proceed on the basis that Trump, Trump gets a second term, what can allies do to mitigate against that capriciousness? Um, I think Australia will be better served in that process given its institutional links, whether it's defence, intelligence, five eyes and the like. But what can countries like Japan and Korea do to mitigate against the adverse consequences of the uncertainty which will stem from a second Trump administration? Well, I think, I think that is an important question. I do think Australia ha has done better, better than most, although there was certainly unpleasantness over the steel and aluminum tariffs at the beginning, uh, some immigration questions. It, it's been a complete mystery to, to many, uh, myself included, why we seem to be mostly engaged in uh, fighting with our allies diplomatically rather than with our adversaries. And uh, I can't explain it. I'm not a shrink myself. I don't purport to understand it. Uh, and, uh, and the only thing I think worse than, than seeing it from Washington is probably seeing it from the capitals of our allies uh, who have to put up with it. Uh, look, I think uh, uh, prime ministers of different countries have adopted different uh, routines. I think the recent announcement of 
Prime Minister Abe's uh, retirement in Japan obviously will bring a new leader there. He was also uh, very diligent in working on Trump. And uh, I just uh, published a piece in the Washington Post that explains that how Abe approached meetings, uh, determined to make sure that there was room to talk about geostrategic interests and not just importation of American beef into Japan, which, which could have occupied Trump for a full hour's worth of meetings. Uh, it, it requires, I think, more patience and, and uh, discipline on the part of the allies themselves to remember that Trump is wrong on one fundamental point. He sees foreign policy as consisting of a range of individual relationships, and he conflates incorrectly, in my view, his personal relationship with the foreign leader with the overall bilateral relationship between the US and that particular country. So he says, I've got a good relationship with Vladimir Putin. Isn't that a good thing? Well, sure, as a personal relationship, I, I, don't, I don't mind having that kind of good relationship, but only Donald Trump thinks that means, therefore we have a good relationship with Russia. So it's the, the, the leaders of the allies, I think have to recognize that uh, that in, in Trump's view, with all these things kind of mushed together, uh, they've got a, more of a responsibility really than in other circumstances to try and stay close to him. And one thing that Abe did, I don't want to give away everybody's secrets here, but he was on the phone and meeting with Trump as frequently as he could. I think many other leaders are kind of shy. They don't want to bother the American president. That, that's a mistake in a Trump administration. Call him all the time. He, 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 won't, he won't think you're wasting his time if you've got something to say. And I just, I think it puts the burden on the allies. I just think they have to work harder to keep that underlying country-to-country uh, -country relationship where the interests are strong and the long-term importance of the alliance is strong and just recognize Trump is an anomaly. He is a personal anomaly. He is not the future of the Republican Party and the direction of his, uh, if I have anything to say about it anyway, and, and he's not necessarily the future direction of America. It is an influence that will remain, but it is an anomaly. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. Um, relatedly, um, Ambassador, uh, we've got a question from Zoe Daniel, who served as uh, Chief of Bureau, a Bureau Chief uh, for our national broadcaster in Washington. And, and Zoe was asking, you know, how deliberately considered are Trump's actions? Um, are they strategic or are they random, in, instinctive? I'm just wondering how you'd parse that against what you're saying about him not having any policy commitments. Well, the, the decisions don't tend to get made in the context of first analyzing a problem, trying to develop a strategy, ordering your, your priorities, and then monitoring uh, implementation. It, it's just not the way he processes information. And he doesn't, doesn't particularly, he's not particularly interested in information to begin with. So uh, what, what his subordinates try to do to compensate for that is develop policy and, and hope that he will largely agree with it. But since his involvement tends to be anecdotal and episodic, uh, it, can, it can have a widely varying effect. You know, what he says Tuesday morning uh, may be one thing, and it may be contradicted by the time you get to Thursday afternoon. Uh, I, I, I said in my book describing the formulation of trade policy, which has not historically been a National Security Council responsibility, although I would argue that it should be along with our economist friends, but these discussions with Trump about trade policy went on and on and on day after day, repeating many of the same arguments. It made my head hurt that, that we couldn't develop a more coherent approach. And, uh, uh, and, and, and that makes it very hard for the bureaucracy of the government, whether it's the trade agencies, the Defense Department, the State Department, whatever the case might be, uh, from performing in a, in a fashion that friends and allies alike uh, can understand. But, and in particular, Ambassador, rising to the challenge of, our, of the moment, um, this is precisely the time you've got, you'll hear it from the director of the FBI, you'll hear it from Attorney General Barr, you'll hear it all across the United States government, that the response to the China challenge requires, you know, magic words, whole of government solutions. Um, a sort of a, a very clear-eyed approach to interagency in a way perhaps we haven't done since the Cold War. Um, how has 
how does the United States meet that challenge when, as you've said a few times now on this call, the, the commander in chief really hasn't got the intellectual appetite or, or the instinct to, to see trees, let alone perhaps policy forests and, and sort of an ensemble of policy that, frankly, this struggle for primacy with China on the one hand, that is understood to be the great challenge of our age on the one hand, um, where's the policy follow through on that sort of integrated policy in particular, if the commander in chief isn't going to drive it? And to add to that, without the people, without people like yourself or, or, or precisely, the, you know, the, the foreign policy experts who would normally implement that type of thing. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the substitute, at least what I tried to do is, is use the National Security Council process, which is a, a way to formulate policy across the range of all the departments and agencies that have uh, an interest or a voice. Uh, that is the whole of government approach. Uh, the, the, and, and then hope you can get as much of it done uh, w without, uh, without being disrupted. Uh, and, and I think we were successful there in a number of uh, in, in areas, but, but the fact is there's not gonna be a comprehensive approach uh, while Trump is president. His entire uh, uh, way of, of doing business is, is just simply contrary to that. And you know, I, would, I, I think there's a fertile field here for scholars in the future to contrast how Dwight Eisenhower, in, still in the early days of the Cold War, with his military background as a strategic planner, uh, used the National Security Council process. It was, it was formed under Truman, but really developed under Eisenhower compared to how Trump does it. I, I think if Eisenhower came back to life today and, and walked into the NSC uh, offices in the White House and the old executive office building, uh, he, would, he would just throw his hands up in despair that this was the way America was formulating its policy. It's, it's a, uh, and, and it's attributable to one person. It, this is not the fault of a cabinet secretary of this department or who the national security advisor is or who the senior director is for Europe or Asia. It's the fault of the president. Um, that's bracing. <laughs> um, um, it leads to a question from um, one of our students, uh, Denise Bartomart, pardon me, um, and we sort of turn this why aren't you still there question around a little bit. And, and Denise asks, with the benefit of hindsight, Ambassador, would you still accept a position in the Trump administration today? If not, why? And if you would, what would you do differently? Mm. Well, I, I would still I would still take the job as national security advisor. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, an important job in a in a time of great challenge for the United States, uh, and uh, I, I I didn't take the offer the first time naively. I thought I knew what I was getting into. I think uh, the biggest mistake I made was to believe that uh, after roughly 15 months in office, which is about the time I came in that the, the gravity of the responsibility, the scope of the, of the consequences of his actions would have had an effect on Trump. And they, they did not. He remained blissfully ignorant of uh, how the government worked and uh, how, how, things, uh, uh, how his actions uh, affected international affairs. So I think uh, what I would have tried to have done would have been uh, to, to have a, a broader approach rather than uh, than, than getting sucked into the uh, today is Tuesday, what are we going to do today kind of approach. I think it's almost impossible. And in that sense, I think a rapid circulation of officials may not be as bad as people think, because if you bring new people in, I think they'll resist this, this tendency toward chaos. And I think, I think that's entirely a good thing. But it goes to, to the point I've made in, in discussion since the book came out, why I fear a second Trump term. I think the damage that he has caused in domestic American politics and in international affairs after one term can be fixed. In fact, I'm quite optimistic about it. I think it's easier than some people think. But I do believe that the consequences of two Trump terms in, in many areas will be irreparable. And I'm very worried about that. Um, a question I'd, um, that comes to us from um, David Ritchie, who um, had a long career in Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, rising to the level of ambassador. Um, David asks, um, how does Ambassador Bolton see President Xi's hold on power in five years? And relatedly, what are China's areas of potential fragility? 
Well, it's, it's hazardous uh, to, to make predictions when you're looking at an opaque uh, uh, political system like China's. And, and there are certainly reports from time to time of threats to Xi and, and uh, dissidents and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. I, I think there are, uh, uh, there are there, there's plenty of other evidence though that Xi continues to consolidate his power, his personal power. Uh, and he achieved that in large measure by purging his opponents under the guise of an anti-corruption campaign. Really a pretty, pretty smart strategy when you think of it. So, you know, I, I've been asked for a prediction. I'll, I'll give one. It's worth what you're paying for it. But I think his, his position in five years will still be very strong. And I think the system will continue to be autocratic. What its weaknesses are, though, I think are, uh, uh, are not as well appreciated as they might be. I think the continuing fallout of the one-child for family policy and the imbalance of marriage age men to marriage age women is something that that uh, still has uh, uh, deep and, and uh, really not well understood implications inside Chinese society. And I don't think we know what the consequences of that will be. I think uh, what's happening with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang uh, is, uh, is something that will have an internal effect, but will have a, a, a considerable effect internationally uh, as the uh, cover up of the COVID uh, 19 virus did, as I discussed before, and, and these external uh, affairs will, will weaken China's place. I think the one that remains uncertain and that may be the, the biggest, uh, uh, the, the biggest uh, question of all is Hong Kong. You know, when, mm -hmm. when, when the handover agreement was negotiated between Britain and China, Milton Friedman in the U.S. said one of two things will happen. Either Hong Kong will become more like China or China will become more like Hong Kong. Unfortunately, the, the trend is in the first direction, but this isn't over yet. And uh, I, th I think that uh, uh, I'd be surprised if what's going on in Hong Kong hasn't had a below the surface effect across China, uh, not what we would like to see. There are no sympathetic demonstrations in Shanghai or Beijing. Uh, or other other uh, other places around China, so it may be that uh, that Hong Kong will be crushed, and and uh, we'll all get refugees from Hong Kong that will make Australian, Canadian, American societies better for the for the tragedy of uh, of what will happen there. Uh, but but there are a number of threats, and I think uh, China's behavior has gone a long way toward convincing others uh, mm -hmm. uh, in the region that they they need to fear. Uh, Chinese hegemony, so that the possibility of bandwagoning has been decreased and the, the possibility of an anti-China coalition has been significantly increased. Right. Um, and I'd like to bring onto the call at this point a member of the board of the United States Study Center, um, Stephen Conroy. Stephen served as Minister for Communications uh, in, the, in a Labor government. I was leader of the opposition actually, pardon me, leader of the government um, in, in the Senate, uh, in the Australian Senate. Um, have we got Stephen with us from Melbourne tonight? Yep. We can't see you, Stephen, but we can uh, hear you. Okay. Apologies. I'll just see if I can uh, get it to come up. There you are. Okay. Yeah, good. Looking good. Hello, Ambassador. A great pleasure to, to listen to you tonight, our time. I wanted to uh, seek your, your views on a comment made in our last Prime Minister's memoir, Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, I think it overlapped with the period that you were uh, in your role. And it was a comment he made in the backdrop of President Trump's relationship with NATO, withdrawing troops from Germany, the treatment which you've referenced to uh, South Korea, Japan, I'd toss in the Kurds and Prime Minister Turnbull described in his book that Australia considered doing a FONOP in the South China Sea, but didn't ultimately have the confidence that America would have its back. And given how you've described uh, the way he could toss overboard everything to get a good trade deal with China, how would you suggest that Australian governments try and communicate to the Australian public that they should get behind a second term Trump government 
and the traditional strength of our alliance in that situation. Well, I think the argument has to be that regardless of, of who holds the top job in either country, the fundamentals of the relationship are going to persist and, in fact, should make the alliance stronger. I, I recall the, uh, the, uh, the, the question about the, the freedom of navigation operation, and, and, and I can understand why the prime minister would have, would have been concerned about it, and he was correct to be concerned about it. Now, in the past six months, in the heat of our election campaign, we've seen the U.S. flatly reject uh, China's territorial claims in the South China Sea. This, this is not as big a shift as some might think, but, but the emphasis before was their conflicting claims, resolve them diplomatically, uh, and now we can say with certainty that the nine-dash line is entirely made up, and, and so there's, there's a shift there, and there's been a substantial increase in our own FONOPS and, and other activities. Now, now, we've also seen Chinese pushback. Uh, just recently uh, uh, firing of missiles near the Paracel Islands because of a, of a U-2 overflight. Thank God the U-2s are still flying after all these years. Uh, but, but it shows, uh, you know, China's not uh, impressed with, with what we've done so far in the South China Sea. We have to be honest with ourselves, which means we're going to need to do more. I think the United States needs a much larger Navy. That's something I hope Australia would uh, would urge on the United States in a second Trump term and, and, uh, and help out with respect to your own defense expenditures. And I, I think it's, uh, uh, it, it requires uh, allied governments to spend more time with Congress. Uh, so, some allied governments, some, some friends of the United States do this a lot. Taiwan, Israel have, uh, their embassies have large legislative affairs sections. I know Australia's does as well. You might want to beef that up in a second. Trump term. And I think you've got to do more public diplomacy as well, because ultimately, without the United States, uh, the countries of uh, Asia Pacific and the Indian Ocean would find it very difficult to resist the, the pressure that China would put on. And uh, I used to say during the Obama administration, you know, when, uh, when, uh, when China threatened Taiwan under Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton sent two aircraft carrier battle groups steaming toward Taiwan. I used to say to people, how many think Obama would do it? And nobody would raise their hand because they didn't think it. And I said, we can understand that. Beijing can understand it too. Uh, it wouldn't even be worth the trouble to ask Trump to, to send a carrier battle group. Uh, and, uh, and, and many of the things that he's done, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think he would sweep away in a second term to get that big trade deal with China. Now, I don't think he can get a big trade deal that ought to be satisfactory to the United States or anybody else, but it goes to the uncertainty and the, and the lack of focus that are going to bedevil American foreign policy if he does get a second term. Uh, it's just important, I think, for Australia and others to keep saying he's an anomaly, we'll, we'll get past this. Uh, the only consoling words I can think of, you, you may know Winston Churchill's famous comment, you can always count on America to do the right thing, usually after they've tried everything else. <laughs> Under Trump, we're going to try everything else. That's one reason why I want, want him to be a one-term president. Thank you. Um, just picking up on that to some extent, uh, Jesse Johnson from the Japan Times uh, said, Ambassador Bolton has said he will not vote for Biden but just in light of your answer to Stephen there, Ambassador, is it your assessment that a Biden administration would be better for U.S. alliances in Asia than a second term of Trump? Well, I don't, I don't think we know the answer to that question. And, you know, you can, you can be wrong and unhappy for very different reasons and still be very, very unhappy about the outcome. If I were going to project, and I'm, I'm hardly the, the person to predict what a Democratic administration will do, but I think the most likely outcome if Biden wins will be a continuation of Obama. Now, it was under Obama that the pivot to the Pacific began, although there was a lot less substance to it than, uh, than, uh, than, than the rhetoric. Uh, I think uh, the odds of a revival of a version of TPP are somewhat higher, although uh, I just urge everybody to remember that in 2016, not only did Trump say he would get out of TPP, so did Hillary Clinton. Yes. So restrain your enthusiasm a little bit. What I, what I worry more than anything else about, though, is the unknown impact of the left wing of the Democratic Party, uh, which we've seen in the Democratic presidential nomination process. It's felt its 
made itself felt mostly in the domestic policy area. We're obviously in a period of racial tension right now in the United States. It's less clear what this left wing would do in foreign policy, but, uh, but I'm, I'm uh, convinced it won't be good news. And the question is how much Biden resisted. So I think uh, uh, while policy will be more coherent in a, in a Biden administration, uh, it will still be the subject of great struggle. Um, on that note, I'm wondering if you could just reflect on, suppose Biden does become the next president of the United States, the struggle for foreign policy to have oxygen, given what's been happening in the United States, by the way, uh, COVID, the devastation of the economy, um, the nomination of a vice presidential uh, Kamala Harris, who, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm talking out of school, probably not a, a deep investment in a career so far in, in foreign policy. Um, often that's a, a great asset for a vice president to bring to an administration, indeed, Perhaps it was one of the things Biden um, did for Obama to some extent, Pence for Trump and, and whatnot, um, has been playing a role on the world stage. Um, just your assessment, looking ahead again, that, you know, and you've been in government in different administrations, just the way that foreign policy competes for the attention of the principal when everything's flashing red at once. Just looking ahead to the next four years, if there is a change, to a democratic administration, how you see that struggle playing out? Let's say perhaps just where the left might take them, but just the salience, the, the ability to get it on the agenda, particularly some of the things we've been exercised about on this call, uh, the grand challenge that China poses and has been articulated as such by the Trump administration to begin with. Well, I think it will be easier under a Biden administration than under a Trump administration because Biden has had a much more conventional career and has had extensive uh, involvement in international affairs. Now, Bob Gates, who was defense secretary both for Bush and for Obama, wrote in his book that, uh, that Biden has been wrong on every major foreign policy issue for the last 20 years. So it's not just my, my opinion here about, uh, about what, what he'll do. But I think in terms of uh, interest and recognition of, of the priority that national security has to have, I think that is not going to be a hurdle uh, in, in the administration. And I do think, although we've made a complete mess of handling the pandemic under Trump, because as you may have noticed, there's no strategy involved here. Why should there be in, in because of the virus when there isn't any strategy in anything else either? But we, we are going to come to the end of this. We are going to get a vaccine sooner, hopefully, rather than later. And it's the vaccine that will that will allow people to go back to something more like uh, norm, normality before before it hit, uh, and 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 that'll just take a, that'll take a huge area of concentration domestically off the table. So I think uh, I think really Biden will do more in international affairs just because uh, his long career in American politics has had him in that place for a long time. Yeah. Um just talking about the election, uh, another question from someone here at the University of Sydney, uh, Susan Bankey, um, Russia and the upcoming election. Um, you know, what mitigation strategies have been or should be put in place to tamp down malign interference from well, Russia in particular, but perhaps other foreign actors as well? Well, it's Russia, China, and Iran, according to public statements by our intelligence services. I think the Russians uh, are perhaps in the lead, but China is not far behind. And by the way, China has had much broader efforts to influence public opinion in America, shaping it even before you get to the elections. Vice President Pence made a big speech on that uh, last year, uh, well, well worth reading in our context. Uh, and this is this is nothing new from from uh, from Russia or the Soviet Union before it. In, in George Kennan's famous long telegram from Moscow, he talked about Russian uh, efforts to influence opinion in America and so distrust in the United States. We're, we're, we remember the the communist efforts to take over the movie industry in Hollywood because that was the social media of the 40s and 50s. Uh, so, so nobody should be surprised by this. And I would say one achievement that, uh, that I'm proud of is that uh, we changed the rules for offensive cyber operations by the United States government from the Obama's very restricted ability to do that because they didn't want to weaponize cyberspace uh, to helping to give us a capability, which we exercised. Paul Nakasone, the head of cyber command and NSA, 
has talked about this publicly. We've exercised during the 2018 elections, and I have every confidence we're exercising as we speak. So the environment is different, and the effort would be to create deterrence that says to Russia, China, Iran, or anybody else, uh, you will pay a higher cost than you realize if you interfere in our elections, which I, I, I believe they did in 2016. I believe they're still doing it. I think it's an act of war against the Constitution, and we ought to be unsparing in our response to it. Um, just a couple of minutes to go. I want to try and sneak in two questions. One is wearing your hat as a national security professional. Um, how much damage is COVID doing to the United States capacity as a nation. Now there's the soft power hit around the world, watching the greatest, largest, richest democracy in the world, just not articulating a national strategy. But from uh, all the other things that are vectors of state power, from the, the readiness of your military, to the strength of your economy, uh, to the mindset of your politicians resolve and focus. I'm wondering if you could, how quickly do you think the United States can get its mojo back both in a, in a soft power way, but in those practical terms as well, Ambassador? Well, the, the only area I'm really worried about is the economy, although that's obviously where we've taken the biggest hit. And uh, I think the there's no doubt that the economy is the basis for the projection of uh, political and economic power as well. That's, that's why engaging China on economic turf is important. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the way we have approached uh, uh, the pandemic, which unfortunately is also true of a lot of other countries, is we, we, we took a big economic hit. We may not have needed to. I mean, I think our reaction was late and, uh, and, uh, and inadequate. And then when it did occur, it was too strong in some respects. I think we're still going through it with respect to education. You know, is the choice only between all the, all the students go back to school or none of the students go back to school and it's all virtual. And somehow we've managed to pick one of the two extremes and it doesn't, didn't need to be that way. Uh, uh, and, and I think until we get, uh, uh, I would disregard the stock market, which is looking forward to the post-vaccine economy, doesn't reflect where we really are. There's still a lot of pain going around. Until we get that fixed, uh, it's, it's going to be difficult to get, to get back to a, a more typical American approach, I think. Um, and last question uh, for the evening, Ambassador. Um, um, and, and that is with a conservatism in the United States at the moment. I, I saw an interview you gave with Jake Tapper on CNN just a few days ago, and you were lamenting the fact that there's no William F. Buckley, you know, there's, where are the intellectuals? Where are the ideas in this era of Trump where the, the, the leader of the Republican Party is a policy-free individual? Um, where does the movement go um, um, going forward? Is it, a, is it a time in the wilderness? Is it looking forward to a, a new generation of leaders coming up through the ranks? Where is that body of thought and its political power trending uh, over the next four, eight, perhaps even longer time frame? Well, I think there's going to be a big conversation after the election. Certainly, if Trump loses, it's needed uh, immediately, but it, it's going to happen even if he wins uh, about the direction of conservatism and, and the direction of the Republican Party. And uh, I, I think uh, I am confident that uh, that a more Reagan-esque uh, conservatism will prevail. I think, I think it's uh, uh, what we're seeing now is, is hardly conservative. It's a person that some people give allegiance to and whatever he believes, they believe that's not conservatism. It's we, we pick our philosophy and then we pick our leaders. Uh, and I think that's what we need to get back to. Again, after one term, I think there has been damage, but I think it's repairable. Uh, and I think intellectual battle does uh, uh, really take you to new heights as well. The challenge gives you the opportunity. So I'm optimistic. But if we go through this for eight years, uh, then, then I think conservatism in, in the country will have suffered significant damage. It'd be much harder to fix. Um, um, can I chime in just before you do the final wrap up? And, and Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much. It's been a really a tour de force, but I have to confess with all due respect, there's a bit of a disconnect in the conversation because your book is so eloquent in pointing out the dangers of another Trump term. Tonight, in every answer you gave, you very eloquently laid out the dangers of another Trump term. And then you, you kind of said, look, Biden wouldn't be your choice. 
It's not ideal, but it seems to be there's a real imbalance between those two. I'm kind of curious as to, given how well you've described the risk ahead of us, why you're not more definitive on the choice being faced by Americans in front of the election, or maybe you're just kind of following your own advice saying, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> well, you, you, you may have put your finger on it, but, but you know, it's, it's a, I believed in 2016, it was a choice between the lesser of two evils and uh, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton were a year ahead of me in law school. So I knew that when long time I voted for Trump and it turned out to be a mistake. Uh, so I don't, I don't plan to repeat that mistake, but I also don't think Biden is the right answer either. And I think the unknown of the effect of the left wing of the Democratic Party worries me quite a bit. So uh, I think uh, you, you, have to, uh, you have to reconcile in your own mind your philosophy with your, your practical approach. And uh, that's why I'm going uh, to do a protest vote. That's the only way I can describe it. Again, I'm not happy about that. I'd much rather be voting for Ronald Reagan again, but he doesn't seem to be on the, on the ballot. <laughs> well, thanks for your candor and your insights. We appreciate it. Simon. Yeah, and, and let me, we've run past the top of the hour. Let me, let me very briefly offer my thanks as well, Ambassador. That was an amazing hour. We obviously could have kept going longer. This is one of our best attended webinars, which is remarkable given the hour here in Australia, uh, nine o'clock here to 10 o'clock now in Sydney. Thank you so much. A great testament of the interest in your career. And, and there it is, the book. <laughs> One more plug. Uh, thank you. And, and, and may, may I say, let's do this in person one day when in, in a post-COVID world, um, either in Washington or, or to get you down here. It'd be a lot of friends down here. And, and again, whatever side of politics you're in, we've heard it multiple times tonight. I think our interests in the alliance transcend partisan division in both countries. It's been, a, it's been a delight to, to sort of explore that aspect of things. The things we agree on uh, far outweigh the things we disagree on, particularly in this context tonight, Ambassador. Thank you.